welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. As the Ukraine crisis with Russia deepens, and hour by hour we hear of fresh assaults and deaths on both sides, it seems timely and appropriate to get an overall understanding of the background to the conflict. Tim Marshall is a journalist and author specialising in foreign affairs and international diplomacy and a former colleague and friend from Our Sky News Days and a devoted lifelong Leeds United supporter. We'll come to that later. Tim has been guesting on the Ukraine, giving his opinion and sharing his understanding of the conflict on news channels and political programmes, as well as writing articles for publications like The New Statesman. His knowledge of the role geography plays in geopolitical situations particularly pertinent. During his 24 years at Sky, he reported from more than 30 countries and covered events of 12 wars. He's filed from Europe and the United States, as well as from Libya, Serbia and Egypt, and from the field in Bosnia, Croatia and Serbia during the Balkan Wars of the 90s. Tim was on the front line during the invasion of Afghanistan and spent time in Iraq reporting on the country's transition to democracy. Tim has become a successful author and written seven books, including Prisoners of Geography, a New York Times and Sunday Times bestseller, which describes and analyzes the impact geography can have on international affairs. And his children's version, Prisoners of Geography, Our World Explained in 12 Simple Maps, was awarded Waterstone's Book of the Year. Tim, it's so lovely to see you again. That's quite an introduction, really, isn't it? just really makes me realise how much you've done over these years. Oh, thank goodness it's audio. I'm scarlet. I'm blushing so much. Now give us a sense of just how busy the last few weeks have been for you. It's gone nuts. I feel almost like a war profiteer. It's awful. There is so much thirst for context about what is going on, both at a sort of detailed level of, of stuff on the ground, but then the, the real bird's eye view as well of why... And, and what's the deep background to it and, and what's the history to it all. There is just an outpouring of, of this need for context about what I am arguing is a watershed moment uh, in our history. Can you give us a sense of that context and how you see it, Tim? I approach things often, uh, the basis is geography. And I'm not a determinist. I don't think that every single thing that happens is because of geography, but it's just that it's often the missing element. And this, this is, I think, the best example in the world of how geography is a determining factor. And I'll try and give you the brief version. It's the North European plain. It's flat. And its narrowest point is Poland between the Baltic and the Carpathians. The Russians have been invaded through that gap many, many times. It opens out into flatland in front of them. It makes them nervous. I, I understand them. I, in no way does it justify what they're doing. But I understand their nervousness and how you can sell this war to the Russian public for the time being. So if you can't control Poland, then the next best thing is to control Belarus and Ukraine. And when Ukraine decides it wants its future to be looking westwards, again, the Kremlin gets nervous. And that's the sort of deep historical and geographical background to what is going on. I and mean, there's a lot more to it than that. But in a nutshell, when the Kremlin looks westwards and sees in front of it a power which it no longer controls and a power which believes its destiny lies west, not east, then it decides it'll do something about it. And of course, what it has tried to do about it is, is I believe, utterly indefensible. And you describe it as a watershed moment. Expound. 
There are these moments, aren't there? I mean, we all know them in history. Sadly, they are often to do with conflict, 1914, 1918, and these delineate the, the passage of, of time. I mean, there are other things, moon, moon landings and stuff, but it's big stuff. Now, look at the effect of 9-11 uh, in 2001. 20 years of ramifications flowed from 9-11, and I think it's the same here. We have got a, a, a major war in Europe, it does delineate and divide the European continent into two sections. More than that, it's brought into sharp relief what I've been arguing for a few years now, that the new divide is not the communism, the Iron Curtain, and the democracy on the other side of it, of the West. The new dividing line are the industrialized democracies of various shades on one side of a line, and on the other, the authoritarian states, because Russia still is a sort of pseudo-democracy. Iran still lets people vote. But I would put into that side of the fence places like China. And you can draw a line now down through Europe, through the Central Asian republics, down through China. And pretty much everything on one side of it is authoritarian government. And most of the things west of that line are shades of democracy. And I believe that's the new dividing line. The reason I don't think it's entirely West is that the new industrialized democracies also have to include places like Japan and Taiwan and South Korea, which you put into one side of that divide. So that's why I don't think it's a straight East-West. It's an authoritarian and democratic divide. I've been speaking to quite a few Russian families who moved here in the last decade or so, and they say that they've seen this coming with Putin for a long time, which is why they moved to Britain. As a broadcaster and journalist, Tim, have you seen this coming for some time? Well, I hesitate to say yes, because nobody likes a know-all, but <laughs> I'm afraid so. Yeah, it does happen overnight in coups and all the rest of it, but it also happens in a creeping manner. And Putin has slowly turned Russia from a country that could have gone towards democracy, but he's led it the other way. You can make the same case for, um, I, I believe, Erdogan's Turkey. It used to be the poster boy of states that wanted to join the EU, and it was this held up as this example of a, of a vibrant Muslim democracy, but he, you know, he's taken it in the other direction. So you looked at what Putin did with a whole bunch of things on his domestic law, whether it's the internet laws and bringing the internet servers behind Russian borders so that they can turn it off whenever they want, or laws such as changing the constitution so that they can legally go to defend any ethnic Russian anywhere in the world, even though they're not Russian, that, that sort of idea of ethnicity. And then Georgia, the invasion there, notably 2014 and the invasion of Ukraine, it's all been leading in one direction, and it's arrived. What do you make of the two things that have been in the headlines this week, Tim? Ukraine officials saying that they believe Russia is aiming to split their country in two, and also President Zelensky saying that he is willing to discuss a neutral state. Well, there's a whole bunch of stuff behind that. I, I did a map piece for CNN about three weeks before the invasion, and I gave four scenarios, and I said the second most likely scenario would be a, a division of Ukraine along the, the Dnipro River, which does split the country in two. Now, it does look from the initial invasion that, you know, he pretty much fancied most of it, including the coast, the Black Sea coast. But this incredible, inept, corrupt, inefficient, hollow, brittle military 
which we have now seen is the Russian military has done so badly and the Ukrainians have done so well that the maximalist ideas have gone. I think he'd be lucky now just to get that 50-50 split, but they might try. And you look at the positionings of the troops in the south and the east and if they could link up and it's possible. Although I think the fallback position will just be the Donbass region, which brings you to the second bit, the acceptance by Ukraine. That would be a difficult referendum to get through. Firstly, what they could probably get through would be Crimea. We recognize it. It's Russian. If you go home, except from Crimea, I think they could sell that because it is de facto, if not de jure. Donbass would be more difficult. They only held a third of the Donbass, the, the mostly Russian-speaking areas. Whether that would get through a referendum, I don't know. But the suffering that the Ukrainians are going through, it does look like Zelensky is prepared to make that compromise. At the moment, they're both bleeding each other to see who can hurt the other the most to gain whatever they can from the eventual deal. So I don't know if it's halfway. I don't know if it's just the Donbass. And I don't know if it is just the Donbass. It would get through a referendum. The only glimmer of good news in all this is that at least they're talking about compromise. Have you been impressed with President Zelensky, Tim, and how He's handled himself, and to me, he's come across very presidential and statesmanlike. Oh, enormously impressed. He's always an interesting and very clever figure. I mean, I was aware of him before this because of just of his backstory. This comedian, this TV comedian, who's actually very funny as well. I've seen some of his sketches transforming himself into a president. But, he, you know, he, he was an impressive figure, but he didn't look like a, an amazing wartime leader, which is what he's turned into. Tell you what I do think is going to happen, though. You know news and you know both the, our attention span, but also the audience's attention span. The longer this goes on, the less we will bother with his emotional pleas. It's just the nature of news. It won't be news anymore. And so if it grinds on in a slightly lower intensity conflict, it will. It already has fallen away from our front pages. There have been days over the past couple of weeks it hasn't been on the front pages. The Chancellor's spring announcement knocked it off the top story. And that's, that's the way of the world. You know, I'm not even making a case for or against it. Yeah, I mean, he's going to go down in history. But I do think that we will pay less attention to him as the weeks pass. If the conflict grinds on, what I think is of great concern, and I know that you've experienced firsthand is the humanitarian crisis. And yes, we've all rallied as a world. We've found aid. We're trying to support Ukrainian refugees. But what worries me, Tim, is how long this carries on for. How long are we going to support the refugees? These are people without their home, possibly for years or even a lifetime. Compassion fatigue will set in. It's 10 million displaced and 3 million actual refugees. We're going to need a Marshall Plan, something of the magnitude of the post-Second World War economic miracle that the Americans mostly funded. The EU and the, the Americans are going to have to put the money in to rebuild and to get people back home. Now, most of them want to get back home because a lot of people that arrive on our shores, for example, they are refugees. Some of them are also economic migrants who don't wish to go back home because they can get a much better living here. And I, I quite understand that rationale. But they want to go home and most of them will as and when they can. But the longer it goes on, the more the compassion fatigue sets in. And there will be some places where you will see the open doors and hearts begin to close a little bit. It happened in Turkey. And again, I, I'm not trying to make value moral judgments on people. The Turks opened their doors at their houses and their hearts to the Syrians and others. They took in three million. I don't think Turkey gets enough credit for it. But several years into it, it began to turn more than a year ago, there have been attacks on Syrians, attacks on shops that they own. 
demonstrations in the street chanting them for them to go home. Erdogan's military policies in Syria have been designed to throw them back across the border. It's what happens. I'm not saying we would be quite like that, but the longer it goes on, the greater the danger is. Yeah, and of course, there are still millions of displaced people around the world from conflicts that were years ago. So The Russians are clearly using scattered bombs. These are bright yellow and blue little bomblets that you, you drop from a great height, and then they spread out over a large area, and they're essentially mines. And they get buried in the ground. And in Cambodia, it's 30 years since they were spread there, and they're still killing little kids who pick them up thinking they're toys. So Ukraine will have that and a million other issues to deal with. You were foreign affairs editor and then diplomatic editor when we worked together many moons ago at Sky News. And one of the things, Tim, as a general news studio presenter that I always appreciated, and you know I always appreciated this, was your ability to take a complicated situation fraught with historical and political nuances and make it palatable and easier not just for us as general news presenters, but for our viewers, where does that come from? Because we'll get onto your writing in a minute, but it's something that comes through very clearly in your writing as well. There's two answers. One is that if somebody's sensible enough to ask me a proper question, I can attempt to answer it. Because what you may have noticed is that increasingly presenters tell you half the things that they think are important about the story and then ask you to agree with them. One of the reasons I ended up thinking, yeah, I better quit this this industry is that every day I was tempted when somebody said he used to go on for like a minute and then say and of course that's why President Biden has done this and I always just wanted to say yes <laughs> <laughs> but you'd get into trouble I shout at the telly now when I hear reporters say yes that's right or absolutely I hate it can't begin to tell you I feel I ought to write a strong letter to the Daily Telegraph or something about it I don't believe you have to use the language of the high priests. Decent doctor, when he or she is explaining to you what's wrong with your big toe, doesn't start using medical terms that you don't understand. So why on television would a news reporter start using arcane high military doctrine or diplomatic, diplo-speak, as I used to call it? Or if you're trying to explain the economics of a country, don't speak in French. Don't tell them it's laissez-faire economics because nobody knows what laissez-faire economics are. So there was that approach. But also, I don't believe this stuff is that difficult. I think it can be broken down into its constituent parts, which mostly join up and make sense. So just do it without unnecessary language. If I admit that I think there is a skill to it, which, I, yeah, perhaps there is, it is to find that balance between being arcane and dumbing down. And in the middle of there somewhere, there is a sweet spot and you just try, have to try and hit it. You did always hit that. And of course, it is your area of expertise. And if you're a viewer at home, this isn't their area of expertise. So I always took the attitude as well that it was fair enough to ask straightforward questions. Well, Helen, let me, you know, as this is a mutual praise society, let me praise you because I'm a friend, good friends with Adrian Charles, a BBC radio guy. And I was busy lauding him yesterday. We went for a walk with his dog called Tito. He's half Croatian, which makes me smile that he named his dog Tito. Oh, and I was saying to him, and I'll say it to you, he does a couple of things. If he's got two people as guests, he doesn't find it necessary once one has stopped speaking to then launch into a 60-second question. He's smart enough just to say, Tim, and off you go. That's good presenting, I think. And the other one, which again he used to do, is just don't be embarrassed to say what's happening where you are, because that's more interesting than your question. 
Forgive me for being so. No, you're so right. And I always want to throw things at the radio and TV when <laughs> presenters give the whole answer in the question. So uh, tell me, Tim, where did your interest in geography, politics and international relations stem from in the first place? Is it all the way back to your childhood, do you think? Well, I was never cool. Um, I'm trying to find, I haven't really got the phrase for it, because if I told you that even that I watched Martin Luther King's funeral when I was nine and obviously didn't understand it, but was gripped by it because I realised something was happening, or the moon landings uh, when I was 10, or seeing the footage from Auschwitz when I was 12, or studying what are the longest rivers and the biggest cities, and all, all that sort of stuff, you'll think geek. And there was an element of truth to that, but also at 13, I'm afraid, I was wearing a pair of Doc Martens and a Crombie and going down to the football and going to Motown, that was our local youth club, because it only played records on the Motown. Yeah, I was also that kid. So I think I got it I got it from curiosity about the world. Just used to look at maps and think about it. And I was just, just curious about the world. But, I mean, I don't know how much of my, my fascinating backstory you know, but I left school at 16, went to work on the building sites and never entered my head I would ever be a journalist, although that is what I wanted to be. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, let me put it this way. They invited me to leave school. Did they? Oh, I see. My mother, my poor mother, was brought in with me and Mr McClintock, the deputy head, said, uh, Mrs Marshall, we do think it would be better for both Tim and the school if he didn't come back next term. <laughs> oh, no, were you that bad? Were you naughty? I was worse than were that. Were you always in bother? And I say that with um, some amusement, but no pride. <laughs> oh, gosh. So did Mrs. Marshall agree then and take you out of school at 16? Well, I mean, she probably was just grateful that they didn't expel me. They invited me to leave. So what happened then when you left school at 16 and went to the building sites? I found out just how incredibly poor I am at painting and decorating, basically. <laughs> um, if you ever pass the, uh, the the service station at Sandbatch on the M6, have a look at the loos, because I painted them. They may well not have been painted since, I don't know. Now, I was just rubbish. I was terrible. I've got two left hands to this day. I can barely change a light bulb. But I had no qualifications. And a fascinating interest in what is the longest river in the world isn't going to get you very far. So... So I joined the Air Force because, well, I went to the army first and I said, well, I have to go to Belfast. And they said, don't, I remember his words, don't you worry, son, we'll have you battering down the Shankill Road in no time. <laughs> All right, that's that one off the list. So I went to the Navy. I had poor eyesight and they said he can be a, uh, a warehouseman on shore. I thought, what is the point of joining the Navy to be a warehouseman on shore? So that went out. So my third choice was the Air Force. And I think this was all on one day from memory in Leeds City Centre because all they all three of them had um, in those days, you know, CSN has had big recruitment area uh, shops. And uh, yeah, this 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 Air Force chap he said, "Oh, you can be a cook, get right. You can be a driver, okay. Or you can be a telegraphist. What's that? Radio operator. Oh, sold. I've seen enough films to know what a radio operator is. Yep, I'll do that. So that's what I did. So how did you become a journalist? And why don't I know these stories? Through luck. Fast forward X number of years, four or five years. I was in London, unemployed, doing a night school course, because in those days they were free under Red Ken in French, conversational French. And I suppose you do make your own luck. And I met the news desk assistant at LBC IRN. She handed in a incredibly badly typed CV. I wish I had a copy of it. I bet it's got loads of errors on it. And she gave it to the head of the news information research department who needed somebody for three days. And she brought me in, Vivian, bless her, and she gave me three days' work and, um, you know, must have seen something in this ill-educated young man. And then uh, 
suddenly there I was talking to you on, on, on your podcast, Helen. It's ironic that you didn't want to go to the Shankill Road and you've been in conflicts all over the world. What inspired you to start writing, Tim, about the significance of geography and world events in the first place? There were a number of events during the conflicts where it just became so blindingly obvious that the reason that A was happening was geographic. It was based upon the terrain and who needed to achieve what. So I just took it on board that I needed to explain that in the reporting. And then it sort of branched out from that. That I mean, a lot of it's blindingly obvious when you see it. I mean, it was Orwell, I think, that said the hardest thing to see is sometimes is what's right in front of your nose. And so I just paid more and more attention to resources, where they were, what they did, who wanted them, why they wanted them, who they could sell them to. And it started to explain a lot of things. I mean, you could argue the old Americanism, follow the money. I mean, it's not all about oil, but... Yeah, you know, it's worth following the oil. It's worth following the resources. Uh, and it's worth following what is and is not achievable. The, the asinine example is, uh, I've given a couple of school talks and I say, I'm the emperor, China. And I wake up one morning and I say, right, I want to invade India. And if anyone's got any sense, they'll say to me, well, your emperorness, what a great idea. As all, indeed, all your ideas are. There, there is a slight problem. And then you ask if it's junior school. Right, hands up, who knows what the problem is? And the smart kid in the front row puts his hand up or her hand up. Uh, yeah, the Himalayas, sir. You got it. That's an asinine example. But coming down from there, all the way from the Himalayas, there are just examples like that, left, right, left, right and centre, which brings us back to Ukraine and, and its flat ground. And what stories do you draw on in your books from your own experiences as a journalist? Well, less, less as I get older, Helen, because um, in, the, in, in Prisoners, which, well, in the first one, which was about the Kosovo War, it was a direct, we awoke to the sound of gunfire. Although I did as little as that as possible because I don't like those books very much. But it, yeah, that, that was direct experience. And then in Prisoners of Geography, I did pepper it with experiences because I'd only been out of those experiences about a year and a half. And then there were fewer, when I did a book about flags, which is actually about more about identity, fewer still undivided about all the walls that have gone up around the world. Because you do need a bit of sand on your boots if you're going to tell stories. But my stories increasingly become those of that old git from years ago. It's funny because my publishers, and Jenny and Pippa, my two editors, were wonderful women, brilliant, really brilliant. They encouraged me to put myself into the books. But just as in TV, they encouraged you to put yourself into the story. And I've always resisted it because, yeah, I have an ego. You know, we all do, especially in telly, we have egos. But I also have a sense that it's not about me. So there again, there's a bit of tension there. Just lighten things. But increasingly, I, I have fewer stories. I like the story I read that you said you were in Bosnia and you saw a village on fire and you'd asked the people that set it to light why they'd done it. Yeah, in order to make people be afraid, not just there but elsewhere, but especially in that valley so that everybody runs away. It's theirs and there's a main road they can have. That is a bit of a light bulb moment. And it's also when you begin to understand the value of fear and the logic of fear it's why I, I tend not to use the phrase uh, mindless violence, because if you've got some thug in the street on a Friday night, yeah, that can be mindless violence. But if you're talking at state level, it's not mindless, it's deliberate. The Russians are, are doing it at the moment. And the, one of the classic examples in recent years is when Al-Qaeda appeared over the horizon, ISIS, I should say, sorry, in, in Iraq, and there was about 8,000 of them. 
and about 50,000 Iraqi troops ran away without firing a shot because they were absolutely terrified of these incredible people that had made a habit of filming atrocities that we need not, need not go into and putting them on the internet. Just the sight of their black flag coming over the horizon and you're off. And that's not mindless violence. They knew what they were doing with all those videos they put out. As a child, you ate up fiction and non-fiction books. I know you loved atlases and you've already expressed your interest in world events. How important was it to you that you wrote a children's version of Prisoner of Geography? I don't think it was my idea. Again, I think it was Jenny and Pippa's. We like Jenny and Pippa. Uh, me too. Well, the moment it, it was suggested, I just thought, yeah, what, what a great idea. And the beautiful drawings in, in, in the book, just to because I was reminded of myself, you know, and I would have liked a book like that. And I'll give you the best example. Again, it's Russia. You can tell a kid there's 11 time zones in Russia. It won't mean very much except to the brightest. But if you tell them and you put a little picture of a train chuffing along, even though there aren't any steam trains, but it just looks nicer. And you have a bit of text next to it as it's chuffing along through Russia, that if you get on this train here, it'll take you seven days and seven nights before you get to the other side of Russia. Bing, in a moment, they've got it. That's a big place. So yeah, it was great to be involved in that. It's just come out in America, actually. Didn't get picked up by my usual... I'm I'm published by Simon & Schuster, Scribner in the States. They, they didn't pick it up for whatever reason. That's fine. But an independent publisher picked it up and it's out in America now, which I'm really happy about. And without blowing your trumpet for you, you have had superb success. Been a Sunday Times bestseller lots of times, a New York Times bestseller. I always get great pride when I go past Daunt Books and I see Daunt Books is my favourite independent bookseller and I see a big display of yours in the window or Waterstones with your children's book. How exciting has it been for you that you're a successful broadcaster and then you've turned your hand to writing and your books are clearly really appreciated and much loved? Well, you know the old thing about so many people keep waiting for the tap on the shoulders. What are you doing here? There's still a bit of that. I'm still constantly surprised, still constantly think maybe I'm a fraud. I'm introduced on the radio sometimes as an expert, and I'm not sure I am. I think I am knowledgeable and have the luck to be able to perhaps put some of that knowledge across in an accessible manner. doesn't make me an expert, but I'll take it. I'll, I'll take being able to do that. But it has been an absolute surprise. I will admit to being fairly single-minded once I got into journalism. I knew I wanted to be a foreign correspondent, but I never had a plan. I mean, Heseltine apparently wrote down on the back of an envelope when he was at probably Oxford, might have been Cape, one of those. He wrote on the back of an envelope when he was 21, his path to become prime minister, which he missed by an inch. I never had anything like that. But what I did do was, oh my God, I worked my socks off. When I, when I first got to LBC, I, I genuinely was working from four in the morning to late in the evening and Saturdays unpaid because I just thought one way to get through here if you haven't got much experience is to get some. Yeah, I think grafting's key, isn't it? And I, I do think that a lot of some younger people don't understand, that, especially if you're not particularly lucky or privileged, incredible hard work might get you somewhere. I think also not having a plan. I've never had a plan, as you probably can see and realise. But I think it's embracing opportunity. And I think where you and I were lucky in the early days of Sky News is that Sky News was groundbreaking. We were new and therefore we got offered opportunities that we may not have been offered, perhaps at BBC or ITN. I'm a great admirer of the BBC. I've got friends at the BBC. I'd have been happy to forge a career had I thought that possible. But I, I did several weeks as a freelance reporter on the Today programme. And one 
one of my contemporaries uh, was the son of a lord. Another was the son of a cabinet minister, I believe. And maybe I'd have got somewhere there, but I think they would have buried me. Oh, well, I think you'd have done very well there. And we can't leave you without talking about football, because I know you're a diehard Leeds United supporter. <sighs> and indeed, you've written a book on football chants, haven't you? Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm, and I'm... I'm quite proud of it. Dirty Northern Bar Stewards, if you have a filter. If you flip it over, the back cover is Soft Southern Bar Stewards. Ostensibly, it's a book about football chants. But at the same time, what I did was use the chants to explain Britain. If you're playing in Cardiff, you know, I've got Welsh friends, Bryn Law, who's the commentator at Leeds. Lots of Welsh friends, lovely. But football fans will understand the, the line in banter which isn't isn't crossed. And this doesn't cross it in the football world. It might cross it in other worlds. If you play in Cardiff or Swansea or Wrexham or Newport, one of the songs is they should have built a wall and not a bridge. <laughs> but that then allows me to explain where that comes from. The Seven Bridge, the fact that actually there once was a wall, but they built it, Offers Dyke. And just to sneak in a bit of British history there about Offers Dyke and about maybe, I don't know, how the Romans never conquered across a certain line you can draw very roughly from, from the Wash to uh, Newcastle. And by the way, you might know that Wall's End is called Wall's End because that's where the wall ends. Things like that and, and many others just allowed me uh, simultaneously to write what at times was a very funny book. Well, Grimsby Town, where I'm from, you'll probably know that Grimsby is the only football team that never plays at home because we play at Blundell Park in Cleethorpe. And they have a they have a wonderful song, which I've forgotten now. We go on Boxing Day always when I'm up north and we always <laughs> sing. We only score when we're fishing. Well, again, and the away fans will sing, sing when you're fishing. You only Now, you know, non-football fans, this is incredibly childish. And the answer to that is, yeah, isn't it? <laughs> but it's great fun. Now, naturally, you're busy still at the minute, and I would imagine for some time to come commentating on events as they unfold in the Ukraine and writing articles. But what's next? I am writing a new book. The terrible events in Ukraine have got in the way. I'm a month behind. I'm wondering how on earth I'm going to make up that month. Uh, well, extra hours. Key to writing, apparently, according to Hemingway, is ass to seat, fingers to keyboard. So a bit of that. So I'm writing a new book, and no, I'm not going to tell you what it's about. Similar vein, but different this time. Hopefully comes out next year. Well, I think it's time to get your ass on the seat and your <laughs> fingers on the keyboard and to uh, wind up our podcast. It's been a pleasure, Tim. Thank you so Thank much you, for fitting for us in. me all about myself. <laughs> it's, it's, okay. it's kind of fun. That's okay. Sometimes you're allowed to do that. Thank you. You've been listening to Tim Marshall, journalist, broadcaster, and best-selling author specialising in diplomatic affairs. Tim is in demand at the minute commentating on events in Ukraine and, as you just heard, trying to get his new book to the publishers. His books on the significance of geography in politics make a fascinating read and, if you've got children, then do check out his beautiful hardback in which he makes it all much easier to understand. Download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple and Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'll be back next week with another fascinating guest. Join me then.